the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. So, what do we have here? We have a New York State Attorney General who ran on the promise to get Trump, suing Donald Trump for defrauding people by overvaluing his company. And now nobody can find anybody who says they were defrauded. And Trump says the judge, of course, should be disbarred. Uh, We have a Democrat congressman who's caught on video pulling a fire alarm in a building in the Capitol and then claiming it was an accident that he thought he was opening the door. Now, how many fire alarms have you accidentally set off when you thought you were opening a door? Then we have a senator appointed in California who's qualified mostly because she's black and, of course, gay, but also doesn't live in California. Apparently, that's not a problem. And, of course, Joe Biden looks more demented every day. The most recent example was when he had a Mitch McConnell moment during a press conference. Then we have a senator from New Jersey who was caught with $500,000 in cash stuffed in his clothes that were hanging in his closet, and he expects you to believe it's his savings. That's where he puts his money, you know, instead of a bank. And that's politics in Washington, and it's more evidence every day that no matter what party they're in, we should all do whatever we can to give them as little power over our lives as possible. And, of course, they have power because they take our money. You went to work today so you could pay the salaries for these people, and they could figure out more ways to spend even more of your money. Well, that's where OpenTheBooks.com comes in. We thought today, with all the insanity going on, instead of just giving you more of the same stories about the insanity, we'd bring Adam Angievsky in to tell you about some more ways that the idiots in D.C. are wasting your money. We'll have Adam on after the break here. And in our second half hour, speaking of politicians having too much control over our lives, We'll have someone here from the Commonwealth Foundation to tell you what a regulated state you're living in. Did you know that Pennsylvania has 166,219 restrictions? That's 30,000 more than the average state. You do now. Stick around. Well, I ran down uh, some of the craziness going on in Washington politics these days in the open of the show. Uh, And we see that the people in government make it clear every day that they're no smarter than we are. They just have the power and the money. And speaking of the money, Adam Angievsky, founder and CEO of OpenTheBooks.com, does a better job than anybody keeping tabs on how much of our money they are wasting. He joins us now. Adam, always good to have you on. We have to keep people updated on where their money, how their money is being flushed down the toilet. So it's good to have you on. Thanks for having me back. It's great to be here. So lots of money was wasted during the COVID hysteria, and it still is being wasted as a result of it. Uh, And uh, according to your site, it looks as though the good Dr. Fauci made out pretty well, as we've talked about here before. Well, Dr. Fauci, his household net worth had a sharp rise during the pandemic. So in 2019, that year ended, the Fauci's net worth was $5 million. And over the course of the pandemic years, it rose to as high as nearly $13 million. 
Last year, because of the weakness in the stock market, the Fauci's took a million-dollar haircut, so they ended 2022 with $11.5 million worth of wealth. So they went up to $13 million and back down to eleven, but that's not bad starting at five. Well, actually, uh, uh, it was a five million dollar increase oh, at okay. one point. It started the uh, pandemic at seven point six oh, million. Okay, oh, still- it's not a good look. You know, you're crafting yeah. U.S. healthcare policy. It brings misery on millions of Americans, and you're profiting significantly during the pandemic. While you're shutting down people's businesses, some of which are still gone, they're never coming back. Exactly, and the Fauci's didn't have to worry about that. Because they were government employees. Mm-hmm. So obviously, Dr. Anthony Fauci, in January of 2021, in my then column at Forbes, I broke the story that he was the number one most highly compensated federal employee, even out earning the president. And in 2019, he made 417000 but that salary was spiked throughout the pandemic, and he retired last year on a salary of at least 480000 But you've also got his wife, Christine Grady, Mrs. Fauci. She's the chief bioethicist at Fauci's employer, the National Institutes of Health. So while Dr. Fauci out-earned the president, Mrs. Fauci out-earned the vice president. If you add both their salaries together, John, and if you add the cost of benefits at taxpayer cost every year, the two Fauci's cost the American taxpayer $1 million a year. That's nice. Um, it's, it's a good living if you can get it, huh? That's... and. Um, and not only that, but being told every day what a genius you are and how you've saved the planet. That's, that's got to be worth <laughs> well, something. Like and it's more than being told. He collected large awards, seven-figure awards for that. So as soon as Biden was sworn in as president, Fauci received um, – he received you know, the heads up from, from the National Institutes of Health uh, – to collect a $1 million prize from a foreign nonprofit. And here's exactly why he got it, for speaking truth to power during the Trump years and for, quote-unquote, defending science during the Trump years. How so? How was he defending science? <laughs> well, this is why he collected the million dollars. Now, $100,000 of that he had to give away to hand-pecked scholarships, so he kept a little over $900,000 of it. So there are, there's a nonprofit out there. Was it an American company? No, it's uh, the Dan David Foundation in Israel. It's a foreign nonprofit. So um, a nonprofit can't think of anything better to do than to give a million dollars to a guy who's, along with his wife, making a million dollars a year. And as a wealth of, uh, I don't know what it was at the time he got it, but somewhere around $10 million. So in... And look, the key to understanding, as you know, U.S. healthcare policy was meet the Fauci's. So you've got Dr. Fauci out there crafting the U.S. pandemic response, and you've got Mrs. Fauci, Christine Grady. What she's doing is she's backstopping on all of the key policies, Dr. Fauci's edicts, with ethical studies. So on, ma- on mandatory masking, mandatory vaccines, the economic lockdowns, patients dying in isolation, you've got Christine Grady who had her husband's back. Look, this is a conflict of interest around the breakfast table, the dinner table, and at the office. Wow. And um, uh, where, where else was this extra income co- coming from? How do these, um, these uh, not endorsements, but what's the word I'm looking for? 
that like they where they where they make money from a company um, a, a sponsorship third party royalties yeah royalties that's the word I couldn't come <laughs> up with royalties so during this period the pandemic uh, period according to Dr Fauci's ethical and financial disclosures which we had to file a lawsuit with with Judicial Watch we had to battle this out in court that battle continues over the course of the last two years today in federal court but we finally won access to who was paying. Fauci, Francis Collins, the former director of the National Institutes of Health, and 2,409 of its scientists. And so, look, it looks like Fauci's third-party royalties are very small, but obviously he defended this massive secret flow of third-party royalties into the agency, enriching the agency over 2,400 of its scientists and its leaders. So there was a lot of people around Fauci receiving a lot of royalties. Now, it doesn't look like Fauci was receiving a lot of third-party royalties uh, toward the end of his career. But what do you get a royalty for? What are, what are those other doctors, what are they, what are they being, a royalty is a payment, and it's uh, for uh, services rendered, I guess. So in this case, it's for discoveries. So um, when an, a National Institutes of Health scientist makes a discovery, you know, they're on a taxpayer-paid salary, their mm-hmm. lab is paid for by taxpayers, when they make a discovery in that vet lab, they license it to the private sector to monetize it and distribute the new technology. And then the private sector company pays a royalty back to the agency, which gets split with the scientist. That entire third-party royalty complex, we now know over the course of the past decade, was $325 million paid from the industry think pharmaceutical company, back to the agency and its scientists. They tried to cover all of that up. So how did they try to cover it up? How hard, how, how hard did they work, I guess I should say, to cover it up? So here's the timeline. Two years ago, our organization at OpenTheBooks.com, we filed a Freedom of Information Act request with the National Institutes of Health for the database. They ignored it. 30 days later, we sued them in federal court out of Washington, D.C., with Judicial Watch as our lawyers. By February of that year, we won the case, and they started to produce 3,000 pages of line-by-line royalties. That took them 10 months, and it was slow-walked and heavily redacted. So they, they redacted, they blanked out the amount of the individual payment to the scientists. They blanked out what was invented, the license number, patent number, and they blanked out the name of the company that paid the royalty. The production was virtually worthless. So we're back in court, um, you know, winning cases on, for instance, the agency just turned over the names of who paid who. So that, that was a big victory. Now we need to know the amounts paid to the individual scientists. And then we don't have to guess. We don't have to estimate. I, can, I could tell you exactly how much Fauci received over the course of the last 12 years in royalties. Right now, we, we're only estimating. What's the defense that they put up for not disclosing the information? What reason do they give for just not disclosing it? It's a, it's a government uh, agency. It's taxpayer-funded. What, what, how do they justify not telling you what you want to find out? Well, two primary reasons. They say that, one, it's a trade secret. And two, it's an invasion of personal privacy of the scientists. We <laughs> vehemently disagree with both of those things. Look, at, you know, at the height of the pandemic, the American people, we started to feel 
that big government was very close to big pharma. This database tells you exactly how close they are. And um, on to another subject, the, um, I guess it's the, is it the EPA and Chuck Grassley and military gear? <sighs> yeah. So in August, we came out with an oversight report. And we come out with one of these on federal spending about once a quarter. We did the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, and we found hundreds of thousands of dollars of purchasing by the agency on guns, ammunition, and military-style equipment for about 200 of its special agents. And so the senior senator from Iowa, Chuck Grassley, picked up our report, and he wrote a five-page oversight letter to the EPA, and this oversight letter will quantify the gun locker over at the EPA. And so we'll get a, a real-time reporting of what's in their gun locker. You know, how many weapons and what type of weapons do they own? Uh, we'll, we'll know how many bullets they've stockpiled, you know, and a lot of other good questions. We'll have answers to, finally. And they sto- are they stonewalling on that? Well, we'll see. You know, it's not... You know, it's not, again, it's not advisable for a federal agency to stonewall somebody like Chuck Grassley. He's a, he's mm-hmm. a serious player. So um, we're talking to uh, Adam Angievsky, founder and CEO of OpenTheBooks.com. You should go to his website and check it out. There's a lot of stuff on there all the time about this insanity. Um, nobody likes Amtrak more than Joe Biden, Adam. <laughs> uh, not surprising that there seems to be uh, some waste going on there, too. Well, we finally won... Uh, the payroll over at Amtrak. Now, here, this is another catastrophe. This is another part of the war on transparency at the federal level. So Amtrak has about 19,000 employees and a total payroll of $2.3 billion. You know how many we got, John? We got 10. We got the salaries of 10 employees, 10 executives that lead the agency. And it is pretty interesting, I have to say. They all make more than a half million up till about eight hundred thousand dollars a year, and now you know half of that compensation they say is at risk. Think they have to do an earnout by hitting their numbers on bonus. But here's the problem: their ridership is still down to you know as compared to 2019 pre-pandemic, but their costs are way up. In some markets, on some lines, their costs are up by 44% since 2019, while the ridership is down. There's one rail line. It's, it serves uh, New Orleans to Los Angeles, California. The, uh, the losses on this line are so extreme that they lose $560 per passenger. <laughs> uh, that's, so every the time somebody tra- it, the decides... The they lose. Every time somebody decides to take the train from New Orleans to California, um, it costs me money. It costs you money, $560 for every person that gets on that train. And this is not unique. If you're going to go from Chicago to Los Angeles on Amtrak, the uh, Amtrak loses 300 bucks per passenger. That would seem like a business that wouldn't last very long if it wasn't using <laughs> um, other people's money. Well, this is a congressionally chartered federal corporation. Okay, so <laughs> it was formed in 1971. Every single year, it's lost money. Last year, it lost another billion dollars. You know, we, over the course of the last two years, taxpayers have put about $15 billion into Amtrak. It still can't make money. Well, what's wrong with the, it? Uh, the Acela line, uh, you know, that runs from Washington, D.C., you know, through New York City, 
they used to be highly profitable. They would Amtrak would make $98 for every mile that train moved. Now it loses 2 bucks per mile. <laughs> so here's the thing, <laughs> and we're talking to Adam Angieski at OpenTheBooks.com. You, the number you gave on the, on the uh, Louisiana to California rail, uh, yeah. f- $560 every time somebody takes it, it costs the taxpayers. Right. I don't know what airfare would be one way from New Orleans, or I say, Louisiana to somewhere in California. Wouldn't it make just as much sense to just send the people who want to go from Louisiana to California, an airline, a five hundred dollar airline ticket. Actually, Listen, you could mass purchase the vouchers. The airlines would love it, and you could get it for less money. That that actually is a great example, John. See but, that that is the information repository of regular Americans like you and like me. We could save Amtrak a ton of money just by buying airline vouchers. Well, you can find it in uh, in local situations here, like. Um, you look at the port authority here, and I don't have the, you know, the actual down to the dollar details, obviously, but just anecdotally, um, you know, you see a you see a bus going by with two people in it, and it and it's you know it's ten o'clock at night, and the bus driver has to be paid, the gas has to be put in the bus, and it would be a lot cheaper to just have a limo pick up those two people and take them wherever they want to go. Every night, you said, "No, the same two people take the bus." It's it, it happens so much in government, doesn't it? Yeah, it really does. It really does. The uh, uh, Amtrak is uh, just a you know, it's a catastrophe. Um, you know, the war on transparency. There, we should we des- you know, I did the math: nineteen thousand employees, two point three billion dollar payroll. Each employee at Amtrak I mean, it costs the American taxpayer, you know, costs Amtrak. 121,000 a piece. We deserve to see, you know, all the salaries at Amtrak, not just the 10 most highly compensated executives. Yeah, but imagine a politician coming forward and saying, "Listen, I've got a plan. I want to start paying buying airline tickets for people who want to go from Louisiana to California, and I will buy them a ticket up to 500 bucks each way." Um, and people would think the guy was insane, but he'd actually right. be making sense. Well, and it gets a little worse. I, I actually um, took a look at the ticket fare. This is probably why they lose so much money. Nobody's nobody's riding it. It costs nine hundred bucks round trip from New Orleans to Los Angeles, which you know, yeah, the airfare is is a lot cheaper than that. Yeah. Well, so hey, think I'm, about that. They're charging nine hundred bucks round trip, and they're losing five hundred and sixty dollars each way. I'll On be, top of that, if you if you need me, I'll be in my car. Hey, Adam, uh, thanks for uh, coming on again as usual. Usually uh, have great stuff for us. You did today, as always. Thanks. Thank you, John. Okay, that's Adam Angievsky of OpenTheBooks.com. Well, I was um, planning to start this segment by reading the Pennsylvania uh, Code, but I noticed that I might not be able to squeeze it in because it would take 740 hours um, that's 18 and a half weeks to read about regulations. What's in the Pennsylvania Code? Elizabeth Stell is policy director at the Commonwealth Foundation. She joins us now. Elizabeth, thanks for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure. And yes, please don't spend the next 18 and a half weeks reading the code. I don't know if you'll have any listeners left. <laughs> 18 and a half minutes would be killer. So um, maybe the first question should be, what's not regulated in Pennsylvania? 
That's a that's a good way to look at it. Um, well, there are a, a few areas where we're not as bad as some states, but overall, we're the twelfth most regulated state in the country, and we regulate um, about twenty two percent more uh, than the average state. Um, so more regulated than not regulated. Um, we see this as a really big problem in terms of killing jobs and uh, just increasing the cost of business across the Commonwealth. It touches everybody. And what do these regulations do to the economy? What 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 um, re- what evidence do you have of the damage? Yeah. So when you look at Pennsylvania's income growth, um, our GDP growth, gross domestic product at the state level, you can see that we are chronically behind the rest of the country. We have personal income growth rates that are um, regularly in the bottom ten of the fifty states. So we said, okay, we know regulation is an issue in Pennsylvania, but how big of an issue is it? What does it actually mean for you and me as individuals? Uh, And so we did this study to count exactly how many regulations we have, 166,000 plus, um, exactly, you know, what that means on the economy. Well, we had to kind of look and say, okay, what would happen if we removed some of these? You know, other states that have done this, what have they gained? You know, you don't really know what you've lost. And what we found is that if we followed some of the other states that have taken a systematic approach to cutting the red tape, we could increase our GDP by 1%. Now, that doesn't sound like a lot, but what that actually means is an additional $9.2 billion every year of economic activity generated across Pennsylvania. Can you give me a, a regulation that that would qualify as one that you just mentioned there as, you know, one that would do so much good for everybody if it disappeared. Uh, Is there a regulation out there that maybe lots of people who would be listening now are affected by that could be eliminated and it would help them? There are so many to choose from. Um, We featured the fact that we have over 485 regulations on how we make and sell milk in Pennsylvania. (laughs) Uh, I think there's some room to cut there. Um, But actually, my favorite um, area for cutting regs is the Liquor Control Board. Um, Pennsylvania is very unique. We are the only state that controls both the sale um, and and the wholesale side of liquor. Um, So a whole bunch of regulations that we can cut there. But honestly, there's just a lot of duplication, a lot of regulations uh, that are irrelevant now because we just layer upon layer upon layer upon layer, you know, hundreds of years at this point of regulations. And we've never gone through and said, okay, what do we actually need to be safe and have a good economy? Yes. So the Liquor Control Board has always been one of my favorites. Um, you know, I went to school in Ohio. I live close to the border in West Virginia. We used to go down there and, and uh, drink at 18 when the drinking age was 18 down there. And, you know, you could go down there and buy a six-pack. And and I I worked for a while up in northwest Pennsylvania, which was literally like 20 minutes from the Ohio border. So high school kids could, couldn't could buy a six-pack of beer in Youngstown and in, in Sharon, but they could drive, um, you know, 15, 20 minutes to Boardman, Ohio, or somewhere over there and buy whatever uh, beer they wanted. So um, why Pennsylvania? What's the history of that, and and why is it so hard to break it? Yeah, well, we're getting, you know, a little sidetracked here, but I'm happy to talk about it. Uh, And actually, the history of Pennsylvania is really just tied to to prohibition, and we had a governor at the time that prohibition was repealed that was a teetotaler, and he was bound determined to make alcohol 
and liquor in particular as difficult to purchase as possible. And I think he did a pretty good job. He put the government in charge. Um, so that's the history behind that. And we've come close a couple of times to, to you know, changing that. We've made some tweaks over the years and you can get wine in grocery stores now and beer in grocery stores. Um, but there's still a long way to go. And I think it's a good example of how, you know, we're not talking about removing all regulations and restrictions. You know, yes, like we should still make sure that underage kids are not you know, buying alcohol in the stores. But that doesn't mean we don't have a lot of room to cut, a lot of room to streamline. And that's a benefit to everybody um, because the tangle webs we have right now, it's just killing our economy. Um, and I see that in everything from alcohol sales to occupational licensing, you know, people who want to become cosmetologists and it's too costly. I mean, any sector of the economy that you look at, um, there's regulatory bloat. And so what Pennsylvania needs to do is not just, you know, free the alcohol, if you will, um, but look at all across the state and say, okay, let's take a systematic approach to streamlining our regulations. It's not just one big regulation that's causing the issue. It's layer upon layer upon layer. And, you know, that's what, um, and if you do that, you know, you get that 1% increase in GDP, which then translates into things like, an additional $1,760 per household or an additional 180 jobs every single year. And that just compounds. We're talking to Elizabeth Stell. She's policy director at the Commonwealth Foundation. Uh, you can find uh, some of this information at the Commonwealth at, at commonwealthfoundation.org. I'm looking at the website here, um, and it says uh, environmental regulations account for one in every five regulatory restrictions with a staggering 33,750 regulations in total. That's, um, where, how, how does somebody come up with 33,000 things to regulate? <laughs> well, you know, I think Pennsylvania is blessed to have a lot of energy production. Um, we're at the top of the list in terms of states that produce natural gas, coal, mm-hmm. nuclear energy. We've got it all. Um, that's, that's, a, that's a great thing about Pennsylvania. But that comes with a lot of regulation, a lot of permits, um, a lot of processes. And that's the neat thing about the studies. We didn't just look at how many, you know, separate regulations have been passed in Pennsylvania. We looked at something called regulatory restrictions, which is how many rules do they actually have to follow? Because one regulation could have, you know, five different things, you know, that let's say someone who's drilling a well has to comply with. Just one regulation. So it's really important that we looked at each individual restriction on those um, businesses and said, okay, what is like the actual burden on these folks? Well, I see here also culture, recreation, and the arts. Um, It's recreation, and it's art, and it's culture, and there are 24,349 regulations. What? Yeah, that kind of surprised me. I didn't think they'd be that high up on the That's list. That's second on the list to envi- environmental yeah. protection and natural resources. Yeah. And that's like your Fish and Boat Commission, um, your Department of Conservation Natural okay. Resources that runs your state parks. It's all of that stuff. Uh, Historical Museum Commission, all of those things fall into that category, which, which again, it kind of surprised me. I didn't think they'd rank that high, but uh, apparently there are a lot of rules around those activities. Yeah, it's, it, the, this graph that you have here, it's, it's listed as number of restrictions according to state uh, regulation data. Um, so m- most regulations are restrictions, 
correct? Uh, just by, by definition, they're telling you what you can't do, and you have to prove right. that you should have the right to do it. That's, that's just bad business right from the start, isn't it? It's backwards. And what we've heard from a lot of businesses when we ask them about this project, you know, what they thought about it will be helpful information for them. They said, you know, the problem is, is a lot of times the culture. Um, when I'm working with, you know, and again, every you know, there are some good people in government, don't get me wrong. But when I'm working with a regulator, it's oftentimes not about how can I help you comply? You know, how can I help you protect the environment or keep consumers safe? It's more of a, you know, how can I get you, you know, how can I find something you're doing wrong? And that's the, the mentality and the culture that a lot of business people in Pennsylvania face. Um, and that's a job killer. Yeah, I, I hate to get with another personal story, but I, I, I talk about the property I own up in Canada here a lot. And I talk about it because I run into examples of how Canada is just becoming ridiculous. And I, there's a good example here of regulation we rent our property out, and the government, the township government decided uh, not too long ago because they want to cut down on rentals. And so they told people who rent houses on the lake that uh, you, can only have, you can only use three bedrooms, and if you have a fourth bedroom, you have to put a sign on the door that says that room's not to be used, and you're only allowed to have two people per each uh, bedroom. So that's six people, okay? So here's, here's what I'm getting to. I saw they sent out an email, and they were bragging. They were so happy that they had just hired somebody to enforce all these stupid rules, which means I guess they hired somebody to come and look under people's beds to see if grandma's hiding under there as the seventh person in the cottage. But that's <laughs> how government works, isn't it? They, somebody just yeah. got a job out of it. <laughs> I mean, it gets so granular. And, that, again, that's the problem with having so many regulatory restrictions. Uh, you know, they, they, they multiply, if you will, you know, well, if you're going to create a role in this, then you have to create a role on this other very similar activity and on it goes and on it goes. And we see this with licensing too. Well, if one occupation has licensing with a really high bar, so it's hard for people, new people to get into the business, then I want the same for my business. Mm -hmm. And it perpetuates that way. So a lot of the people that are, you know, asking for new regulations are people who are trying to stop some sort of economic activity. And that's backwards. Uh, so, you know, that's, again, why we say, okay, what Pennsylvania really needs is not just to, you know, go after one or two really annoying, you know, meaningless regulations, but let's look systematically at streamlining it and really making it about helping people comply and not about, you know, putting people out of business, stopping rentals in your case. Um, and, and that's another interesting point is that we're looking at just the state regs here, 166,000 plus just at the state level. But business also have to contend with the federal regs and, like you, the local regulations as well. Yeah. So this is a multi-layered issue. And so um, with, and we're, we're talking, by the way, with Elizabeth, Elizabeth Stell. She's policy director at the Commonwealth Foundation. Um, I'm looking at the numbers here, and you just mentioned them. 136,262 regulations is the average in the average state, but somehow Idaho only has 36,000. Is that because they don't have a lot of people per square mile or because they're smarter? <laughs> well, I mean, maybe a little bit of both. Yeah. Um, Idaho has an interesting story. Uh, there was, you know, they, they have a unique um, 
unique thing happened there a couple of years ago where their entire regulatory code to so that, you know, 18 and a half week administrative code in Pennsylvania, that equivalent in Idaho actually sunsetted the entire thing. So the governor had to go in and basically decide what did he want in the new code. And so they, they pared it down. Um, and this is a little bit in our report where it talks about how much, uh, how many regs that Idaho actually cut. Um, because they had to go through this sunsetting process. And it says, you know, hey, one of the reforms we could have in Pennsylvania is an automatic sunset on all these regulations. Mm-hmm. So that every once in a while, lawmakers would have to look at it and read it and decide, is this still a good idea? Um, and again, that's all about, you know, protecting the consumer and helping people do business, not telling people no. But how do you keep track of 136,000 regulations of, every, of anything? <laughs> a lot of people. <laughs> which means a lot of time and a lot of money. No, but I mean, yeah, to, to enforce them. But, but I mean, if you're going to go through them and, and take a look at them and eliminate as many as possible, uh, how long do you take per regulation? What, what's involved in investigating the regulations and then determining whether or not they're needed? Yeah. Well, not, there's actually, you know, a whole uh, business that's sprung up around regulatory compliance where, you know, I know this happens in energy all the time. They'll hire firms to come in and do essentially the same inspections that a regulator is going to do a couple of days before the regulator. And so that way they can see, okay, we missed this, we missed this, we missed this. And so we're paying people to kind of pseudo-regulate before the regulator actually gets there, <laughs> um, which just tells you, you know, how out of control this has become. Got about a minute and a half left, and maybe this is an unfair question, but um, is there any one area where you have found the dumbest regulations? <laughs> um, well, outside of the um, the milk stuff, you know, my other favorite oh, yeah, example that, that we didn't one. talk yeah. about is the Philadelphia Parking Authority. Um, over a thousand regulations on where you can park your car, how you can park your car, how long you can park your car, the process for get for paying a ticket if you get a parking ticket. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. Every you know little minute activity you can think of is regulated under the Philadelphia Parking Authority. It's, it's, it's kind of no wonder that they had a show about how much people hate the Philadelphia Parking Authority. It's it's, uh, it's terrifying to think that there are people paid for with taxpayer dollars who go in and see they have 998 regulations for Philadelphia parking, and they say, I think we need a couple of more here. If like nine, when does, is there ever a politician who looks at it and says, I think maybe we're over here a little bit? <laughs> yeah, and that's, I mean, that's the exciting thing uh, about doing this research, is that while we have a long way to go in Pennsylvania, our neighbor to the West Ohio just did a big um, streamlining of all of our regulatory code. They're cutting a third of their regs. Um, our not too far uh, neighbors to the South Virginia is embarking on a very similar thing. Even even our, our you know friends to the east a little bit there at Rhode Island um, did a significant streamlining of the regulatory code. So it's happening across the country in a lot of different states with different politics. And I don't think there's any, any reason why we can't do that here in Pennsylvania. In fact, you know, the governor did an executive order saying, hey, we got to at least count up and figure out how many licenses, permits, and certifications we actually manage because no one knew. Well, uh, that's a good first step. <laughs> well, Elizabeth, I'm regulated by the amount of time I'm allowed to take here, and I'm out of it. So, and I'll, have, I'll be fined if I don't get off, uh, go to the commercial now. So 
I appreciate you coming on. Uh, Elizabeth Stell of the Commonwealth Foundation. Thanks. My pleasure. Okay, we'll be right back. Oh, I told you in the opening of the show of all this craziness that's going on in Washington and just in the government in general, told you about uh, Senator Bob Menendez, um, who's uh, he was found with gold bars in his house and money actually stuffed into his pants that were hanging in the closet uh, after a search warrant was uh, issued because he was, uh, he's been accused of taking bribes, and he said, that's my savings, and I'm not resigning, and I'm going to stick around. That just shows you how sick it is. So, so here's uh, someone on MSNBC named Alicia Menendez, and she's reporting on this story. Hey, everyone. I'm Alicia Menendez. Welcome to American Voices. We have a lot to get to tonight, but I want to begin on a personal note. Last week, a grand jury indicted U.S. Senator Bob Menendez. This past week, dozens of members of his own party have demanded his resignation. I have been watching, along with all of you, as a citizen and also as his daughter. I will not be reporting on the legal case. That said, my colleagues across MSNBC and NBC News, they have aggressively covered this story, and they'll continue to do so, as they should. Yeah, okay, thanks, Alicia. Here's my question. I, I don't know who this person is. She looks like she's actually uh, pretty good on the air. She looks good, sounds good. That's 25-second sound bites all I've ever seen of her. But what, how is it that these uh, networks keep finding people to work for them who are related to politicians who are still in power? And there are lots of people out there to hire. Obviously, and she, again, she looks perfectly competent. Maybe she's really good. I don't know. But there's somebody out there who's just as good and looks just as good who's not related to a United States senator, and, and you can hire and have them work for a highly political network that talks about politics 99.9% of the time. I'm sorry, Alicia, you're doing a nice job. Maybe you ought to get a job in sports, but you might not want to work in politics here at our state, our network, because your dad might be, you know, found to be one of the most corrupt people in the Senate. And we wouldn't want you to be around talking about it. Don't hire her in the first place. Sorry. Talk to you tomorrow. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.